News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this may seem like a weird question, but do you think noises have colors? I mean, think about for a second. We do use the phrase white noise. What does that mean, really? But what about things like pink noise or brown noise? It's known as noise colors, and they can affect people's mental and physical well-being. This is a fascinating topic, and Dr. Barbara Shin Cunningham is the Cowan Professor of Auditory Neuroscience and Director of the Neuroscience Institute at Carnegie Mellon University and joins us now to talk about this. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. What are noise colors? Yeah, noise colors really are like an analogy to seeing different colors. When you hear something, it has a quality to it, and noise colors are noises that sound different from each other because they have different content. But a noise generally is just a, a sound that doesn't have a lot of structure, like the background of an air conditioning unit or the sound of your computer fan or other wind sounds, sounds that there's, there is sound there, but it doesn't have a lot of detail in it that the brain latches onto. Okay, so this is essentially noise that we're giving it a description because the brain does latch onto it. it. It gives us an emotional response. It can, for sure. What's, what's actually interesting is I think most noises, because they're not very structured, there aren't many things that the brain really gets excited about. Like when I'm talking to you, every, every little pause makes the next sound that I make pop out a little more, makes it really distinct. And noises are more even. It, all the sound is kind of continuous through time. So if you imagine different noises going on, they don't have, from one second to the next, they sound just sound the same. But the differences between pink noise and white noise and brown noise and all these different color, kinds of noise are in the exact frequencies that they do contain. So low frequencies, like a low-pitched voice, up to higher frequencies, like a more natural pitch for my voice. Those, those differences come about from differences in the frequency of the sound, the rate of the sound changing. Okay, well, I want to run through a couple of these with you so you can explain them to yeah, me. Yeah, let, let's start with the first one. Let's start with this one, which I think a lot of people know, and that is white noise. Okay, so that is white noise, Dr. Shin Cunningham. What does that mean exactly? White noise is noise that has all the possible frequencies at the same level. So it's the least structured of sound that there can be. And it sounds, you know, like a, a random kind of thing. There's nothing, nothing structured about it. And it, all of the frequencies that can exist, exist equally. Okay. And I think that's one that people are most familiar with, isn't it? Right. And, and some physical processes make things that sound a lot like white noise, like um, random Random sounds can sound like white noise very if if they have like crackles that a bunch of tiny little crackles all added together to make white noise that's equal in all frequencies. Okay, so let's listen to this next one. This next one is pink noise. Okay, so what yeah, is... Yeah, so it sounds completely yes. different, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. He said jokingly. I mean, it, it doesn't sound that different it's to me, honestly, because... It, it, it is a little different. Like if you played one back to back, you certainly could tell that they were different. 
but the thing that's funny is they aren't that different. What pink noise is, is instead of having all of the possible frequencies from low to high equally, it has a less energy at the high frequencies and more energy at the low frequencies. And so it's kind of got a different profile, a different identity, but, but there's still noises, right? It doesn't yeah. sound like a voice or it doesn't sound like a dog barking. It sounds like kind of an unstructured thing. And the reason pink noise can be um, more natural for the brain is the way we hear breaks things down into frequency bands that are uneven. Like the, the brain analyzes sound according to the low frequencies, to the middle frequencies, to the high frequencies. And when it breaks down the sound into these bins of frequencies, it actually has narrower bins at the low frequencies and wider bins at the high frequencies. And so when you play pink noise, it kind of fills the ear equally across the whole range of sounds that we can hear. White noise kind of sounds like it has more high frequency energy relative to low because of the way the ear analyzes it when physically it's equal. Right. So pink noise is, is kind of equal perceptually if you will. Okay, but let's talk about one then that is different from that. You said white and pink are a little bit more similar, but something that is a little bit different yep. from that is is brown or red noise, which sounds like this. Okay, so that, that is different. It's it's um, lower, I guess. Yeah, exactly. It's got, it's got less and less high frequency sound and more and more low frequency sound. So it sounds lower pitched, lower. It's got a lower center to it. What would we use that for? Well, any of these sounds can be used to block out other things that are really distracting. And what really, and and the way to think about that is if you're sitting at your desk working and somebody drops a dish behind you, it's going to grab your attention and interrupt you. But every day there's sounds around us all the time. Usually they're not quite as alarming as somebody dropping a dish behind you, but any little noise that is sudden and unexpected can grab your attention and get and and wake your brain up and make you kind of turn around or at least want to turn around to say what was that and and evolutionarily that's a great thing evolutionarily being aware when something new happened around you is a really important thing to keep you from getting eaten by a lion right, right. but in if you're trying to sleep or if you're trying to work and you want to focus and there's occasional little sounds going on around you you can make them less disruptive by playing a sound that is not as interesting to the brain, that is more constant, like a noise, but that constant sound can block out and make it a, the, the other sounds in the environment a little less important to the brain I wanted, by masking them, by making them less clear. Right. Yeah, go ahead. I wanted to skip ahead to the um, one that I know you hold the key to this one. Uh, this one is called... It- Babble noise, and this is what it sounds like. Now, Dr. Shin Cunningham, that sounds like being in a, a, a crowded room. There's like a lot of people. Right, and, and it's still called noise, but do you, to you, does that sound more different than all the others? Because to me, it does. Um, I mean, it's noise to me. I listen to people, I listen to stuff in my <laughs> headphones all day long. So it's either silent or there's noise to me, you know? Yeah. So for a lot of people and for a lot of typical brains, babble noise, which is really made up of just lots of people talking independently and you add it all together and it sounds like being in a cafeteria or being right. in, you know, a crowded setting 
that it, it actually is a little more interesting to the brain because each of the little sounds that that a voice makes aren't even in frequency. At any one instant in time, there's a little burst of energy from one person, and then there might be a burst of energy from the, the talker, the, another talker. So they all add together to kind of create something that doesn't have real words in it that you can hear, but it still has these little tiny changes through time. It's not quite as even through time. And each of those little onsets, each of those little events is more interesting to the brain. So it, it actually can be more exciting to the brain and, and keep attention a little bit better than more flat noise, like right. white noise or brown noise. What, what's fascinating to me about all this is that clearly the brain, it needs this kind of different stimuli, doesn't it? Well, it depends on the person. I personally, I'm the kind of person that works really well if I have something going on in the background. You know, the radio's on in the background all the time when I'm working because I do get distracted really easily. And having something that's kind of constantly on keeps me able to focus, whereas if this, that isn't going on, I get distracted if any other new thing happens. And so for me, it can be really helpful. Right. And, you know, people who have ADHD often will say that they work better when there's noise, they might sleep better when there's something on in the background because it kind of evens out the activity around them so that not any one thing is going to disrupt them in the same way. Right. Your job is fascinating. Thank you so much for telling us about it today. Oh, it was a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. It's time for Vaughn Palmer, the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. And hey, you were absolutely right about the Auditor General <laughs> in British Columbia. You know what? I've I've met Michael Pickup a couple of times, the Auditor General. And when we talked about him this week about, well, why is the Auditor General doing this? In my mind, I thought, uh, he seems to be the kind of person who would do this. And now it sounds like he is doing this. Yes. So the Auditor General, in a letter to the opposition yesterday, who sent copies to the government too, said, as a matter of fact, uh, my staff, are preparing a preliminary look at what's gone wrong at Lytton. So it's been two and a half years since the town was destroyed by fire. And as uh, the point has been made many times in the news coverage, nothing has happened. No homes rebuilt, no businesses rebuilt. Uh, People have died waiting to get back in their homes at Lytton. So what happened here is the opposition, uh, BC United, met with the Auditor General over the summer, said, we think you should look into this. And they wrote him a letter and they didn't hear back. So on Monday night, the opposition uh, tried to get the Public Accounts Committee of the legislature, which is the one that oversees the work of the Auditor General, monitors it that committee to pass a motion calling on the Auditor General formally to do a review, which you're allowed to do. Uh, the, the New Democrats voted it down. The last thing they want, Simi, is an independent review of anything that's gone on with Lytton because it's massively embarrassing to them since they promised Lytton, we have your back two and a half years ago and nothing has happened. Um, we talked about that yesterday. I wondered if the Auditor General would do it anyway. He has the power to do it if he wants to. Uh, You said, um, I think he's the kind of person that'll do that. And sure enough, yesterday, a letter surfaces. uh, And in it, the Auditor General says, yes, I agree that this is something that would be valuable for my office to look into. He's preparing some sort of audit. We don't know the details, but 
This one is blown up in the government's face. The last thing they wanted is an audit. It sounds like they're going to get one. Uh, yes, they are. So what could this look like then? So how does this work? Well, you know, one of the things about this, I mean, first of all, the point to make about the Auditor General is he has in the reason the government cringes at the thought of a review by the Auditor General is the Auditor General's office, semi under law, has much greater access than is available to people who use the access to information, FOI. He can basically ask for any document in the government. And they can try not to give it to him, but basically he's got the power. And that can lead to some fairly sobering findings. So here's one of the things that we've heard in the rumor mill that is a problem at Lytton that the Auditor General should be able to confirm. As you know, because Indigenous people lived on the site of Lytton for thousands of years, one of the reasons you can't just dig up the, the ground and start building is because of the Heritage Act. You have to get an archaeological permit and you have to follow it through. Now, we've been hearing, Simi, that the big holdup is not with Indigenous people. It is not with um, just the lack of funding. There is a huge backlog at the provincial government archaeological processing office. There are archaeological firms up there and builders who say, hey, we've got the money. We're willing to go ahead. We understand we have to do this. Can't get a permit. Can't get going ahead because the bureauc- it's stalled in the bureaucracy. I've heard that, Simi. I don't know to what degree it's the problem, but the Auditor General can go in and get the real correspondence, interview the people involved, no guff about FOI or anything, and get us the answer. And that's one of the most useful things that Michael Pickup could do here. Okay, but this will take a while. It will take a while. The Auditor General, the Act, one of the reasons the Auditor General's findings are so authoritative is they are also methodical. So, you know, we this isn't going to speed things up for people in Lytton right now. This is going to be post-mortem. So it could take a year and a half. Also, Zimmy, I have to say from experience, I've been watching this for a long time, There is a manual, perhaps not written down in government, on how to stall, delay, and divert the Auditor General. The bureaucracy knows the the tricks very well. This will be a struggle. The New Democrats do not want the Auditor General doing this. They will try to constrain the limits of his inquiry. They will push back at his findings, and they will do all sorts of other things. So this is a struggle, but... The battle is joined. I think it's very encouraging that Michael Pickup is going to look into this and he and his office will be under no illusions about what they're up against. Okay, so yes, we look forward to hearing more on that. That will certainly get a lot of headlines for the Auditor General. Oh, I think it would, but you know, that's why the office is there. I mean, you go way back to when it was created. Bill Bennett was Premier of B.C., Following the NDP, he created this office and gave it the power to independently audit and assess what the government is doing. And from time to time, we've had reports from the Auditor General, not as many as I would like to see, but when the Auditor General gets his teeth into it, in fact, the first Auditor General of BC, Irma Morrison, was a her, and she did terrific work, uh, they can do an awful lot of good in the public interest, and they are 
as I said, their access is awe-inspiring. Uh, you and I can only dream of what it is like to be the Auditor General and go in and say, no, I don't want any guff. Give me the damn file. That's the way it works. And it is it's no wonder the government fights back. The bureaucracy loathes the idea of being audited by the Auditor General. All right, we are back now with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. And Vaughn, I got to tell you, I I hate talking about this next subject because I hate every time this story is back because it means that nothing is improving. It's a very disturbing story. We've got an audit report internal, Ministry of Children and Family Development, looking at the question of are social workers checking up on children in care and what are they finding? So Katie Hislop of the TIE got a hold of the report. She posted it online. It runs 18 pages. People can read it. But the executive summary is this. Um, the ministry isn't checking up on uh, children in care nearly as often as they should. And when they do check up, they're finding a lot of noncompliance. So uh, I, I say ch foster children in foster care. All of this matters, of course, Simi, because of that horrible case that we talked about earlier this year, yeah. where the ministry failed to check up on two Indigenous children who were in an Indigenous foster home, and we had one child killed, beaten to death, and another one abused horribly. And the case went to court. You had a judge who must have been sickened by the details. They're online. I am not going to repeat them, but uh, the 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 two perpetrators, uh, the two Indigenous foster parents, pleaded guilty, 10 years in jail. You'd think in the wake of that, that the ministry would have smartened up. And, you know, the ministry's known about this problem for a while, because even though the case only came to light this year, the events happened some time ago. These things take time to go through. So that report is devastating, and it tells us, Simi, to some degree what you said which is the problem is not fixed. The child and youth representative, Jennifer Charlesworth, is looking at it and going, yeah, the same thing. Like, she's got to look into this, but it's incredible that that ministry still isn't doing its job to check up on children in foster care when we know in horrible, sick-making detail what can happen if they don't do their job. And some of the details in this uh, story and this report are just so oh. awful. I should mention that Katie Hislop is actually joining us later in the show this Good. morning, Vaughn, because we wanted to talk more about it. Okay. Like they weren't even doing the minimum, like not oh. one checkup in a year, not even the first basic yeah. checkup. Yeah, no, it, 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 it is incredible. And yet... As I said, it isn't hypothetical. We know how bad it can be if they don't do their job, and we know they're still not doing their job. Um, this, uh, uh, her findings, uh, this report uh, provided a dramatic moment in the legislature during question period yesterday. And I know, you know, people don't follow question period, and it isn't always worth doing it. But every now and then there's a flash in question period, and you go, uh, that is what the opposition is there for. So you've got Adam Olson, the Greens, one of the best speakers in the legislature and one of the most eloquent. And the listener can go into the uh, Hansard feed. It's about a quarter of the way, 10 minutes into the 30-minute question period. And Olson gets up and he goes after the Minister of Children and Family Development, Mitzi Dean, mm -hmm. on this. 
And he says two things. He said, one, this report is so devastating that ministry needs to be rebuilt brick by brick from the ground up. This has gone on too long. The second thing he does is he accuses the New Democrats very effectively, Simi, of a double standard on this. He quotes John Horgan in opposition with David Eby sitting behind him as an opposition member, calling for the liberal minister, Stephanie Kaju, to be replaced because of the same kind of problems. And Olson just looks across at the New Democrats and said, you should hold yourself to the same standard you demanded in opposition and Mitzi Dean should be fired for the awful record of her ministry in protecting children. And I have to say, I've seen a number of uh, moments in question period this year. Uh, This is one of the best. Olson really was formidable. And what do the New Democrats do? They just run for cover. Dean gets up, gives a boilerplate answer. There's no intention of firing her. Um, because Why? they don't hold themselves to the same standard they demanded in opposition. And what's terrible about this is like we're coming up on the one year anniversary of of David Eby becoming premier, yeah. which means that Mitzi Dean will have been in the job for one year. And to, in my mind, Vaughn, you know, one year is enough time to show some progress in what your goals are and, and how you how seriously you take the job in the ministry. And I don't see a whole lot of progress here. No, I, I think. I think she's a feeble, weak minister. I think she's demonstrated it. You listen to her answers in the House. Simi, I I don't like to be too cynical. Some days I think you can be too cynical in this job. But I, I did hear from somebody in that ministry, the theory in the ministry, why does David Eby keep Mitzi Dean yeah. in the job when clearly what's going on, there'd be justification in replacing her? Um, The cynic line in the ministry is they're keeping her around, waiting for the reports of the child and youth youth representative, Jennifer Charlesworth, so they'll have someone to fire when those reports come out. Yikes. As I said, I hate to be too cynical, but you look at this minister's record and you look at what's going on there and you look at what the NDP demanded when they were in opposition, it is very hard to just to think of any reasonable justification for keeping Mitzi Dean in the job when her record and the ministry's record is so awful. Agreed on that one. Avon, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. There are no words to describe what is happening in the United States this week. While internationally, the United States is very focused on the Middle East and supporting Israel at home, the House of Representatives can't even seem to get its, you know, so-called house in order. Uh, we're joined now by Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent with more on this. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Boy, I have to tell you, this is a story that I can't stop reading about and getting updates on. And I understand there's something going on right now with this House Speaker race. Uh, yes, they are back in session again. They are now going to uh, be undertaking their third vote to try and get Jim Jordan, a hardline Republican lawmaker from Ohio, aligned with Donald Trump with a kind of storied and troubled legislative history into the highest position in the House of Representatives. The problem is he's already failed twice before. He's hemorrhaging more support. Uh, and those who are not supporting him, some of the moderate Republicans, are now themselves facing threats from uh, voters within Jordan's base who are making these threats saying, look, you need to essentially trying to bully other Republicans into voting for him. So, I mean, 
there, there's likely not going to be an answer today or possibly tomorrow or possibly the next day. So those aggressive tactics, which, you know, have been used in the past, they really backfired in this case. And it feels like it made some of these more moderate Republicans just dig in their heels and say, you know what? No. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we need to wait to see what happens with this vote. I mean, he lost 20 people on the first vote earlier this week. He lost 23 people in the second vote the following day. It's possible that maybe some people are have been intimidated enough that they may come around or that more people may vote against him. The problem is, is that Republicans are simply entrenched in let's make it Jim Jordan and Jim Jordan only. They're not thinking about any kind of uh, secondary solution. They even thought about making a temporary position to give, you know, the the gavel to somebody through January and members of the hardline right side of the of the party pushed back and said no. So, I mean, you're right. Their heels are dug in. Democrats are lining up unanimously behind their leader. Republicans can't. And until they can, absolutely nothing can get done at the governing level. Okay, and maybe you could explain to people, Reggie, why is Jim Jordan just anathema to so many Republicans that they're saying absolutely not? Well, number one, uh, he has been accused of things uh, in his past before he was in politics uh, of turning a blind eye to to potential assaults and sexual assaults uh, at the university that he was a part of when he went to Congress. Uh, you know, I think it's been 16 years. He hasn't had a single bill passed over the last 16 years. The one that he passed earlier this year was a hardline uh, stance on uh, abortion, trying to push for a national ban uh, from coast to coast. Uh, he is aligned uh, strongly with uh, former President Donald Trump, and there are just members of the party who say that he is simply too extreme. Democrats came out this morning and called him a quote-unquote clear and present danger to uh, America, and, and it is, it's clear that he doesn't have the support within his party. Republicans are blaming Democrats, saying, look, it's your fault because you're not voting with us, but at the end of the day, <laughs> Sorry, this is... yes. Yeah, they're, they're, why they're, would they think that the opposite, they would never do that for Democrats, of, so why uh, would they think this? Of course they would, because it will play to their base. They can blame anything on uh, on Republic, uh, rather on Democrats to say, look, you know, they may they don't have as many people as we have. If they, they don't have, join with us, we can't do anything. But it ignores the, the fact that they don't have their own party in line. They have the majority, though. That's the kicker. Well, and I mean, look, they have the majority. They were supposed to be carrying out investigations into Hunter Biden. They're supposed to be carrying out this impeachment into Joe Biden. None of that can happen. And they are instead blaming it on anybody other than themselves. I mean, look, they are burning the house down and there are legitimate questions here as to whether they're going to be able to keep their majority by next year or if it's going to turn uh, the voters against them. Okay, so let's talk about why this is so significant, because they're not getting any business actually done. And and we heard the U.S. President Joe Biden with an Oval Office address. There's a list of things that they want to get going on. Sure. And the biggest list of things is financial uh, injections into foreign defense spending. We heard Biden last night talk about the threats to um, the stability of the global democracy. Uh, and he, he's putting out a plan today. The White House will announce $60 billion, uh, rather $40 billion for Ukraine and $17 billion for Israel and $7 billion for the Indo-Pacific region and billions and billions for the southern border. All of that is dependent on a House speaker being elected because nothing can go to the ground, uh, to the floor for a vote. Uh, and many of these issues, including something like spending for the southern border or spending on Israel, are issues that Republicans ran on in the last election. So, I mean, they are only going to have themselves to blame if they can't get this through. But the White House says uh, that the House itself needs to get itself in order uh, because there are threats that are going to pose a threat 
to U.S. national security if they don't do it. Okay, so there's all that going on. And I feel like in the meantime, though, Reggie, the kind of U.S. presidential election has uh, fallen a little bit um, off the list of things that we're paying attention to. A little bit, yeah. I mean, look, the, Joe Biden has been clearly focused on on the threats that are being posed by Hamas to Israel and trying to ensure that people don't forget about the ongoing war uh, in Ukraine. And he's kind of had to sideline some of its events uh, for the reelection campaign. Donald Trump was in court a couple of days this week in New York for uh, a civil trial uh, into his business practices. And at the same time, uh, you know, Republicans are trying to figure out whether or not they're going to line up behind Donald Trump or someone else. And over all of that, there were issues linked to the last election that are still, you know, finding themselves in court, including one of former Trump's, uh, former President Trump's former lawyer, Sidney Powell, who oh, pleaded yes. uh, guilty in Georgia. And this is a big deal because she was a part of some of those bananas schemes to keep Trump in power. She's now pleaded guilty, meaning that there's an agreement here. She has advanced knowledge of what Trump was thinking during the last election. If she decides to help and go forward, this could spell more problems for Trump's campaign in the future. Right. So she's pleading guilty to six, six. That's a lot. Misdemeanors, right? And Mis- so they expect some testimony out of that. Yeah, absolutely. Misdemeanors. Look, she was originally brought in uh, on that racketeering charge, which is big to, to make this plea agreement. Misdemeanors and she'll be on probation and, and owe a couple of thousand dollars and have to write an apology letter. But at the end of the day, uh, she is willing to give testimony. And a secondary lawyer, Kenneth Cheesebro, is also uh in the process of being offered a similar plea deal. So there's a risk here that that people from deep within Trump's inner circle could turn on him, posing problems to him legally in the future, but also politically, because this really could get in the way of whatever he's trying to do with his election back uh, into 2024. Right. Okay. And outside of politics, I have to ask you about this story, too, because about the Colorado funeral home and what was found there, this is nuts. It's nuts uh, and it's gross. Uh, Number one, Colorado has really weak uh, oversight laws when it comes to funeral homes, so it's almost not um, unexpected. But at the end of the day, uh, upwards of 189 bodies were found inside one funeral home, a funeral home that it billed itself as as a natural uh, way to die where you're buried without a casket or anything. Uh, But the bodies weren't being dealt with. They weren't being embalmed. They weren't being put in a refrigerator, and they were just piled up in the room. People were complaining about the smell, uh, and they now have to bring in... This is this goes to show how serious it is. They've had to bring in members of the FBI who are typically called in to deal with uh, recovery after airline crashes. That's how decomposed some of these bodies are and how extensive this investigation is, but could now flip Colorado law to force the state to better keep track of what's happening at funeral homes, because this is, you know, this is people's lives and legacies that are eventually you know, being caught up in, in crisis. Oh, that is awful. Oh, Reggie, uh, thank you so much for that update today. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, time for a breather from the news out there, I think. And one of the ways in which we do that, not just here, but also just in regular life, is to turn maybe to the arts, something like music. And our next guest is going to help us with that. He's the first ever cellist to make it into the UK's top 10, won the BBC Young Musician of the Year Award back in 2016. And you probably remember him from the wedding of Prince Harry to Meghan Markle, where he played and just captivated the world. Also, you can hear him in person. Later this month, he'll be at the performing at the he'll be performing at the Chan Center for the Performing Arts. And Sheku Kani Mason joins us now. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Can I ask, when did you first learn to love the cello? Like when was the first time you played it? 
Mm. Um, well, I started having cello lessons at um, six years old. Before that, I was learning um, the, the piano and the violin. And um, my mum was teaching me the violin um, because she could play it to like a, a sort of, yeah, like decent basic level enough to sort of start us off. And then um, I remember watching a whole orchestra perform and being really excited by the look and the sound of the cello. Um, I think I have an older brother who was playing the violin and he was a lot, um, well, he, he was a lot better than me and, and, and seemed much more natural with that instrument, whereas um, I didn't feel that comfortable with the violin, but the look of the cello seemed like something more suited to me. And so I asked to, to have lessons in that instead. Um, and really from the start, I just really enjoyed exploring this instrument and this music. And um, yeah, I'm glad I, I picked the cello. Uh, you must be, because you're kind of a, a cello superstar, wouldn't you say? I mean, hundreds of millions of people saw you performing at the wedding in, in 2018. What was that like? It was, yeah, a wonderful experience and, and, and a lovely opportunity to perform for so many people. Um, and yeah, just... Uh, Changed yeah, your life. Really yes, yeah, you could say. <laughs> it, it certainly did. You've also called the cello, um, playing it, an embrace. What do you mean by that? Is it because of the, the, the way you hold the cello? Yeah, I think when exactly the way you hold the cello, you're very much um, sort of sitting sitting with it. And I love I love um, the fact that a lot of uh, what comes out in the sound is to do with what you feel physically in connection with the um, with the cello through the you know the, the vibrations of the string to um, how the bow vibrates in your hand and all of these different sort of like physical um, things that create a sound. I think that's um, yeah really fascinating. It really helps you to feel the music, then. Now, this in a day like in with everything that's going on in the world today, Sheku, do you feel like this is times like this is when we really do need kind of the that feeling of music, that connection to music more than ever? I think, yeah, I think music has this um, has this wonderful power um, to bring people together, and I, I, I always think about the the analogy of playing playing music with someone else and when you are really um, together and really understanding and really, really listening um, to the other person, then the music has such harmony. And when that isn't the case, that's when sort of dissonance um, happens. And, 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 and so I think that music can really, really connect us to, to, to each other. And I think it's a beautiful thing. It's a good way to put it. It, just, it shows us the harmony. Now, is it true that you play on a cello that is more than 300 years old? Um, yeah, my cello was uh, built, yeah, 1700. Um, so it's about, I guess, 323. Um, beautiful um, cello made in Venice, yeah. Wow, How, what is so special about it? For me, I love the, the range of um, sounds that one is able to um, get from it. It has this wonderful, deep and rich quality, but also, um, yeah, singing and soaring, uh, the ability to sing and sort of soar above, above an orchestra. It's really... Yeah, very very powerful sounding instrument. Did you ever imagine when you were growing up and you're, I mean, you're only 24 years old at this point, did you ever imagine, though, that you would be playing this cello and playing it in front of huge crowds all over the world? Um, no, certainly, certainly not. But I, I always, um, from a young age, enjoyed the feeling of playing the cello and the feeling of performing. And I, I always had this feeling that I wanted to... Um, do this as much as, as possible. So I think um, whilst I wouldn't have been able to um, imagine it was certainly something that I was really um, like aiming towards. It seems kind of unreal, doesn't it? it does. well, what, what next for you? Um, 
I, I just hope to yeah to be able to continue to perform um, as much as as, as as possible and to, to as many people as, as as possible. And I think um, for me, it's it's yeah, it's just about sharing um, music, and I, I love it. And hopefully, um, I can bring other people to to it towards it as well. Well, you'll be bringing people to it right here in Vancouver in about ten days' time. So thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. It's a pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this week, many municipalities got what they were looking for from the provincial government with legislation allowing them to go after short-term rentals in their community if they want to do that. And quite a few of those municipalities do want to do that. But now we're also hearing from people who stand to lose out, people who run not just one, but maybe several or maybe many Airbnbs as their business. And they say this legislation isn't fair to them. So John Ritchie is a local developer and Airbnb owner and joins us now to talk about that. John, thanks for being here. Hey, no problem. Is this your business? Like, tell me about that. Oh, no, it's not my business. I'm, uh, uh, I have a, a little Airbnb in Victoria that I use as my cottage. Um, it's actually my crash pad in Victoria because I really like uh, coming over here. I'm here right now. And, uh, and when I'm not here, I put it on Airbnb and so that I can um, get a little bit of income from it. I live in Vancouver. Okay, so how my, my main business is I'm a real estate developer in Vancouver. Okay, so then how business like how is the renting out of the Airbnb? Would you say you get good uptake on that? Uh, yeah, you know I think that I've only had it for about six months, but um, I would say that uh, it's probably seventy percent of the time that I'm not here, I've got it rented out. Okay, and you don't want to rent that out on a longer term basis because you need it? No, be- no, because I like coming to Victoria. This is my this is my cottage. You know, some people have a cottage at a lake. Some people have it at, uh, you know, on an island. And mine happen. I happen to like cities, and oh. so uh, I like coming to downtown Victoria and hanging out and and uh, you know frequenting the restaurants and and uh, you know just enjoying the city. So, how do you think these new rules are going to impact you? Oh, well, I, I've uh, I've already said I'm going to uh, I'm going to rent it out on a on a long term basis. I oh. mean, it, it, it I, I'm 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 going to comply with them because uh, but what what it's going to do is it's going to keep me from having my cottage. Um, and and it's going to keep me from you know using my property, my private property, uh, in the for the purpose that I I intended. I, I can keep it as my cottage. Um, I I would I would then not have to pay the city of Victoria a twenty five hundred dollar uh, licensing fee. I could just use it myself and never rent it out. I would have to pay an empty homes tax of two thousand dollars for the provincial government. I'd have to pay the federal government four thousand dollars for the uh, right to have an empty empty home. But but uh, it's just not worth that much to me, so I'm gonna I'm gonna rent it out on a on a long term basis, and um, so the city's gonna get uh, I guess the province is gonna get their wish. Okay, so you're saying though that that sounds like a lot of tax revenue that you're not going to be giving. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know last night I went out for dinner and uh, you know had a, had had drinks and oysters at Ferris and then went over to Windcries Mary and had a great time and 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 that's um, that's something else that's not gonna happen. You know, you know, me, me and my guests, the people who used to stay at my place, are no longer going to be able to patronize the businesses around here. Right. But do you, the, do you understand, John, though, like the perspective of people who say, well, listen, though, it's about getting housing for people. Yeah. yeah my, my suite is 280 square feet. It's a hotel room. Um, you know, if, if I as a developer went to the city and tried to build 280 square foot suites in the city of Vancouver, they wouldn't let me. They say they're too small. The, you know, the, the, this, this uh, one-size-fits-all uh, legislation that has come out, uh, you know, there was very little thought went into it, presumably, because, because there are no exceptions. There's no- 
But see, well, understanding that not all situations are the same. Right. But there's nothing stopping the city of Victoria from saying a suite of your size is exempt, right? Like the whole idea is that the city can now yeah, do oh, what yeah, they yeah, want yeah, to do. Yeah, so, yeah. No, they can't. The province is putting out a legislation that says that no investors are allowed to rent out their uh, suites. Pro- provincial legislation will trump the city's legislation. Right. But it, this is up to the cities now to decide whether they want to use these rules. They can, it, they it, can know, craft I'll, their I'll, bylaws. I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you something. I didn't read the legislation. I've I've gotten my news from uh, from the news, um, and so so I've read I've read uh, you know different uh, commentaries on it and different um, uh, you know news articles on it. But I haven't I haven't read the actual legislation. Um, but but you know I I have read the Coles notes and the Coles notes right. say that they're tar- they're targeting uh, you know people with multiple with multiple Airbnbs. Well, they I don't know why they say that because there's nothing in the legislation that says that. They don't say if you have two or more, you know, you're allowed one and then your second one, we're going to, you're not allowed to rent out. It just says that you can't rent any out. So that's just, you know, I called it a smoke screen yesterday when I was talking to your producer, but I really think the real word is lie. Right. You know, I, they're I not think, targeting that. John, just, targeting but John everyone. you have to understand, you're also a real estate developer here, but I think you can understand the yeah. frustration that people have with what's happened right now in the real estate sector. They want a home. They're, they're less worried about people with multiple Airbnbs than they are with having a home. So, I mean, the number of hoops that I have to jump through to try to build people homes is unbelievable. The road, the roadblocks that have been thrown up, the extra costs that have been added, the the people who don't want any more traffic or parking in the neighborhood and go to council and convince them not to allow people to to build to to, to convince people to the council to to lower densities, all because they because they have theirs and they don't want the next people to have theirs. Those were the real problems. If, if the pro, if the province wanted to. To solve the housing problem, in in April they came out with a with an announcement that they were going to allow fourplexes on every single family lot. They've done nothing. They've done nothing because there are eight hundred sixty six thousand single family homes in in the uh, Lower Mainland, and eight hundred and not all of them want a, a fourplex beside them. Yeah, well, last, actually, about, actually, just last about, night, well, this, just last night, Vancouver City Council approved one that the neighbors didn't want in the Dunbar area. So good, could, good for them. Are things not changing? Do you think is the mood not no. changing towards this? Very, very little. I mean, we've always been able to overcome some hurdles, but it takes. You know, when I when I first started when I first started in the development business, we would t- we'd be zoned in six months. That was in the late '80s, early '90s. My my uh, my last project from from cradle to grave, from the time I bought my site till the time I, I my last people moved in, was six years. It took me six years to, to get a to get an apartment built. Well, what do, my, my my real last site was I bought off of a developer who'd gone through the process for seven years before he finally threw his hands up and said no mas. And then I bought it and was able to get it approved and, and we built it, uh, you know, a few years ago. So, you know, it, it's just uh, everybody talks about providing affordable housing, but nobody wants to facilitate the construction of actual housing. So when you say nobody wants to do that, are you saying levels well, of government you know, or are I, you I, saying the general, general public? Yeah. Are you saying the general no, public? I, I like, think, who are you saying? I think everybody, general public, council, everybody, the, the, the sentiment is that we need more housing somewhere else. Not, 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 you know, just, just not near me. So what do you think is going to happen as a result of this? That ad, like that ad, clearly there's... The, the, the Airbnb thing? Yeah. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll get a little bit of uh, additional rental housing back on the market. At the cost of, of uh, sacrificing, you know, personal property rights. And and maybe 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 somebody's right to have a, a little 280 square foot suite trumps my right to to have a crash pad in Victoria. I'm not going to be the judge of that, but you know that's the way it's going. I, I don't agree with it, but maybe 
maybe public sentiment will. But I, I don't think I don't think it's right. I, and, and, you know, the other thing is that 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 the, the thought that went into it, they, they talk about they it's like it's like this is sucking things out of the economy. And I, and I as I mentioned to your producer yesterday, I, I spent like eight thousand dollars a year on a manager to manage this place. The person who's letting people in and out. I, I spent um, I spent eleven hundred dollars a month on a cleaner. So so that cleaner no longer has a job. My manager had two employees. Those there are three people there who who, who are out of jobs. Um, you know the impact the impact. We, not everything is about housing. I don't I, know. Some people some, might some, some people might disagree with you on that, John. But listen, well, we're we're out of time. I really appreciate you coming yeah. on the show this morning and talking about this. Uh, okay, it is well, certainly th- th- thanks for letting me thanks for letting me vent. This is mornings with Simi. All right, time to talk a little soccer this morning. Coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps, Vanny Sartini, is with us. Good morning, Coach. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. There's a lot to talk about in the world of, of soccer today. First off, we heard Christine Sinclair is retiring. Can you believe it? Yeah, it's, no, because, you know, it's like when when someone is, uh, I don't know, uh, a star for more than 20 years. Uh, she is such a, I don't know, a model and a... And like a reference in the world of soccer, record for the goal scored at the international level, uh, winning everything what you have to win with both the club and the national team. And also, by chance, she's also a, a local legend for us here from Vancouver. So, yeah, it's uh, it's strange. Yeah, <laughs> it's an end of an era, it feels like, yeah. right? Yeah. End of an yeah, era. Yeah. Lots to talk about Christine Sinclair, but also, of course, we have to talk about our white cap. So tomorrow is big. It is the last game of the regular season. I understand it's sold out. Yeah, kind of. Like, uh, I think we, we missed, like, very few uh, people to make it sold out. So if you want to come to the to the game, uh, go there and... Uh, and uh, on, on the website and, and buy the tickets. Yesterday we were already sold like 23,000 uh, wow. tickets. So, you know, it's, it's going to be for sure nice to, to have a full house and, uh, and, uh, and end the regular season against a very good team, LAFC, try to do another win to get in a better position in order to prepare ourselves uh, for the playoff that will start the next week. Okay, so it's important to get the team kind of with the momentum rolling, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very important that uh, you know we treat this game like it's already a playoff game, and uh, we are. Uh, there's also something to play for because if we win, there's still the possibility to finish in the top four. That would give us the home advantage uh, in the in the first round of the playoff. But but I, but I think the the most important thing is to kind of, as you said, uh, go in in order to feel the. I would say the the importance of the game that we're gonna play in the next week, uh, just from tomorrow, and uh, do a good performance to keep the momentum up. Is that what the biggest key has been this week that you've been working on with the team? Then is kind of the the mental aspect of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's been like uh, I told the guys that uh, uh, we would have worked this week like it, it, it was already a playoff week and try to understand and go into the. Um, to the game in a way that uh, it's uh, it's a very important game. At the end of, at the end of the day, uh, if you even if you win the league, the, the the playoff are five games, and before that you played maybe forty games in the season. So it means that they are really important. Each game means a lot. So there's no room for 
mistakes. There's no room for, uh, I don't know, getting out of uh, the, the plan. So we need, we need to be fully concentrated. Okay, so coach, here's the thing though. If, it, if the playoff game is coming up, do you do anything different? Like are your, are your rituals different for a playoff game versus a regular season game? Because the regular yeah, season yeah. game has been good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Two years ago, when we went to playoff, uh, uh, and uh, I thought I, I actually thought about it, and, and maybe we kind of broke a kind of spell because the season was going well, and the playoff we lost in the first round. So I think that this season we need to keep the the, the routine in the same way. So socks, uh, pizzas, everything in the same way. <laughs> yeah, don't change anything. Okay, don't change it. Look, good luck. Good luck this weekend. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. There is nothing about this next story that is not terrible. And the more we hear about it, the more terrible it becomes. And there is no progress being made either. And we touched on it earlier with Vaughn Palmer. This is about BC's Ministry of Child Care and Family Development and the complete failure out there in the East Fraser Service Delivery Area, where we know as a result of problems already, one child was killed and uh, another was severely beaten. And the ministry seems kind of paralyzed to do anything. The latest update on this story comes from the tie.ca where reporter Carrie has, uh, Katie Hislop has been writing about this. Katie is the education and youth issues reporter for the tie and joins us now. Katie, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So you re- you managed to obtain this audit about the area. What can you tell us about it? So it looked at 20 files um, in child protection, in services to families, um, and in services to kids who are in care. Um, and 14 of those files, they, uh, they showed or were re- where visits were required from social workers every three months, um, and there was no documentation to show that these any of these homes were visited. Um, and as we know from that case that you mentioned earlier, those kids were in care for a period of seven months where they didn't see a social worker. Um, and as a result, one of them died. So, so no social worker seeing, like at all, not even a basic visit. Yeah. Um, and to be, to be clear for, for this audit, what we're seeing is a lack of paperwork. So we know for those two kids that they didn't see anyone from July until that little boy died in February. Um, but in this case, all we could, all we know is there's no documentation. So is this a case where work was done um, and they just didn't write it down? They didn't fill it out, the documentation? Or are we seeing repeat cases of work not being done? And unfortunately, we can't tell from this audit because it is, a, it is based on documentation, um, but it does show a pattern of um, a lack of, of basically filling out this documentation. And because of what we know about what happened to these kids, it seems the chances are high that these kids are not being visited at, at this one office in the East Fraser region. Okay. And when you say that there's a pattern of this then, so does the audit show that it wasn't just this particular case, that this is happening in, yes. in other situations? Yes. Yeah. So um, we, we know that those kids weren't visited because of the court case. Um, audits will only show whether or not paperwork was filled out um, uh, to, to show whether the work was done. So at this moment, all we can do is speculate, but we are at least seeing a pattern of the paperwork not being done. Um, and that, I mean, that is an issue because there's no continuity of care. If there's a turnover in the office, 
um, how, how does the next person, the next social worker know what's been done with his family before? Um, so it, it does, we won't find out until the, the representative for children and youth report next year, exactly how much of this lack of paperwork has led to a lack of actual work being done um, and, and care for these kids. Um, but it doesn't look good. Let's put it that way. No, it does not. And Katie, what also struck me about your story is that this wasn't the first time that they had been cited for non-compliance and, and compliance actually got worse during that time. Yeah. So this was a special audit that looked specifically at 20 files, but every three years, NTSB, if there's 13 service delivery areas in the province, so that's regions where, where NCFD offers services. And every three years, there is an audit done on some aspect of their work, and it's publicly released. Um, and it honestly, it shows for all of the service delivery areas, not just East Fraser, they're, they're, they continually fail to meet even 50% compliance um, in showing that their work has been done. So again, we don't know at this point whether that's because social workers are so overworked they don't have the time to complete their paperwork or if the work itself is just not being done. And so what has the reaction been to this? Like, have you heard anything from the ministry itself? Uh, the ministry has said that they're horrified. Um, they said that, you know, they this, this audit was done in October 2020, or released rather in October 2022. So a lot time has passed since then. Um, they said that the people who were involved in the working with those two children in particular no longer work there, um, and that they there was an action plan in this particular special audit. Um, they said that everything has been has been done, um, that they're now they now tracking system to make sure visits are happening and that every child being served by this particular office has been visited. Um, but yeah, it's it's I think that's cold comfort to people um, when these visits were supposed to be happening anyways. Um, How are they going to find out? Did did they mention anything about what they put into place to make sure this doesn't happen again? Because this seems really egregious, doesn't it? It does. Um, So, yeah, basically tracking systems um, is is what they've put in. And I believe they've also hired another um, deputy of child welfare to oversee the work that's happening in that region. But again, I mean, this is just one region and all the regions are continually underperforming, at least in terms of showing the paperwork that work is being done. Um, And I don't want to throw NCFD workers under the bus here. We don't know what's happening, why this paperwork is not being done. So I'm sure there are many hardworking people out there in NCFD, but there is a failure to show how kids are being cared for. Right. But, you know, when I was reading your story, though, Katie, it struck me that I can understand that, too. They're incredibly hardworking. So, okay, maybe some paperwork doesn't get done. But in this case, wasn't it no paperwork was getting done? In a lot of cases, yeah. In a lot of cases, there were there was just nothing in the file. That is the part of it that I, I have a, a hard time with here. So what kind of reaction have you gotten to this, yeah. Katie? Like, what have you heard from people? Um, people are horrified. I've heard quite a uh, BC United and now I think the BC Greens of, as well have asked for the minister to be fired. Um, it, it's mostly just, yeah, people are looking for uh, some kind of justice, I guess, some some kind of retribution. Um, I think some kind of know. recognition, right? That how just horrible. Recognition, this, yeah, yeah. How horrible this mm-hmm. story yeah, really is. Yeah, maybe retribution is. is not the right word, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, it just, it is, but we seem to always have these problems with MCFD, and, you, and you've reported on this many times too. There is a feeling of hopelessness about this. Yeah, um, I've been reporting on MCFD for 13 years, um, and I, I find, I, I find the, the colleagues, I understand why people are calling for the minister to be fired, but I guess I'd like to point out that when the BC Liberals, now the BC United, were in office, they had seven ministers over 16 years. I don't think that just changing things from the top down is working. Um, and MCFD has often talked, to, there's often been a lack of funding or um, n- not an investment into that office uh, in ter- to the level that I think needs to be done if you're actually gonna turn things around. But it's also about outside the office because about 72% of kids who go into care, it's about neglect. And about half of those, it's parents who are unable or unwilling to care. And we don't know how that breaks down, but that means poverty in a lot of cases. Um, So I think we could do things outside of the ministry as well to make difference here. Well, something has to be done for sure. Katie, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. 